0: As we think about loving Cedar Rapids today, we're going to be looking at servant love, or love that has got a servant mentality, service mentality. And I would like to start by actually acknowledging those who are here in our service today who have served our country. So if you're an individual who's served in any branch of the military at any time, would you please stand and let us recognize you this morning? Thank you. We thank you and uh, your families. We know that there's also families here who have um, given a lot in order to serve, and so we appreciate that. So we want to think about what that looks like for us here in Cedar Rapids by looking at the next little passage in Acts that we're studying. So if you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 6, 6. So we're in the New Testament still, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the sixth chapter, starting with the first verse. We've seen the early church get started and launched on a a really high note of the Holy Spirit power and the love of the people and and, uh, extreme generosity reaching out and God bringing many new people into the church That's just been an incredible story up till this point. And now we're going to read what happens next. Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word, and it's true and we can rely on it. I have a recurring dream that often comes on Saturday night and Sunday morning. And the dream is this. I'm back in high school standing in front of my locker and the sermon that I'm going to preach on Sunday is inside the locker and I can't remember the combination. (laughs) That's not the dream I had last night, however. Last night I had a dream and... There were only nine people here in the service today. And five of them were my family, and one of them was a heckler. (laughs) And I knew exactly what I wanted to say, but I just couldn't get it out. And I felt like a total failure. And actually, these nine people were all sitting on chairs against the back wall. The rest of the room was empty. So I'm just so glad that you're all here today. (laughs) And I hope that this uh, message is not a failure. What do you think of failure? Some of you know like I always like to do home improvements and I've always been interested in no project is too big so I'll try anything. I redid our kitchen a few years ago, stripped it all the way back to the walls and I told Mary I could do it in three weeks. We did dishes in the bathtub for ten weeks. So I failed in my estimate on the time frame, and I, that's often the case. My first major renovation was to add a bathroom in my first house. And this was before the day of YouTube, when you could like, you know, get a demonstration video of everything. At some point, I was rushing to complete this project because it, too, took three times longer than I estimated that it would take. And I put a nail through the wall, and water started squirting out of the hole. So I had to call a friend who is a handyman, and as I'm making this phone call, I feel like a total failure. How could I have been so dumb to put a nail through a pipe? And so with the classic kind of tail between my legs, I confess my failure to my friend, and his comment was this. You're a preacher. What makes you think you would know how to do that? You wouldn't ask me to preach, would you? Later, when he came over and was fixing my pipe, he said that he learned everything that he knew by making mistakes, which was probably an exaggeration to make me feel good, but it did get me thinking about my attitude about failure. What do I really think about failure? I don't like to fail, and I don't like anyone to know when I failed. I don't like to admit it. What's your attitude about failure? I'm guessing that most of us here are failure adverse. We don't like it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want anyone to find out about it when we've failed. And this is what I want to talk to you about today. And so I thought I should maybe try to soften everybody up a little bit to the idea of failure. And so I was going to show some video clips of failures. And there's actually a particular category of failures I was interested in. Epic failures. Anybody ever Google that? And as I was watching these videos, they all seemed so mean-spirited I decided not to show them because almost every one of these videos was about somebody getting hurt and then everybody would laugh at them. I didn't think that that would necessarily soften you all up to think about your own failures. But based on the reaction I got to last week's video clip, I found a solution. The solution is to watch pet failures. So I've got a little clip here for you, and it's a clip of failure to fetch, okay? And I want you to watch this right now. Okay, that's all to prepare you for this one reality. Everybody fails at something. Yes? Everybody fails. There's no perfect people. Now, if I was doing the children's sermon right now, I'd go get my pointer stick, and I'd come out there and I'd get the children to follow me around, and I would say, let's find an imperfect person. And when we find an imperfect person, we'll poke them with a stick. And you would all chuckle and go, isn't that cute? I hope he doesn't come poke me. And the kids would start immediately thinking about some imperfect people they know. And the first thing that they would probably think of, the first persons they would think of is a brother or sister. Because if you live with a brother and sister, you know they're imperfect, right? Right? Yeah, there's some poking going on back there. And the next thing they would think about is, I know some other imperfect people. Mom's imperfect. And then they would start to think about Dad, and they'd go, Dad's really imperfect, right? Because if you live with people, you know they're imperfect, right? Okay, everybody's hugging the people they're sitting next to. That's good. With very little prompting, I could get the kids to start to realize that, well, we're all in the same boat. Everybody here in the room is imperfect. And for the sake of the kids, if I asked you all to, you know, raise your hand if you're imperfect, the kids would be watching you, and we, what would you all do? You'd all raise your hands. You'd all go, yep, we're imperfect. It's us. We know that everyone fails at something. Which leads me to the next truth, which is this. Every Christian fails at something. No perfect Christians. My hunch is that by just changing that one thing, it changed your reaction a little bit. Because we start to go, yeah, but aren't Christians supposed to be better people? Aren't Christians supposed to be at least trying to be perfect? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? So if I say every Christian fails at something, you say, yeah, but they should be Perfect. One of the games that Mary plays with our dogs is to toss treats out the kitchen window to the dogs who are waiting in the backyard. And at my house, that's about 20 feet from the kitchen window down to the patio. And it is something awesome about seeing a treat tossed that far and seeing the dog catch it. And when they do, we like go, yeah, we got the most talented dogs in the universe. Look at them do that. It's amazing. And what happens when they miss it? Well, when they miss it, we cheer too because there's something cute about watching a dog kind of sniff around in the dirt looking for treats. And then they usually find it. And, you know, we don't actually expect them to be perfect every time because they're dogs, right? So they mess up and we think it's cute. And what we do when they mess up is we yell at them from the window with another treat to get them to lift their head up out of the dirt and look up and see that there's another treat coming. And they get another shot at it. They're to try and catch it again. I was wondering if we ever thought about Christian fails that way. What if we thought about a time a brother and sister in Christ failed and we thought, oh, it's that cute. They deserve a treat for that. Brother Bob is mean spirited. Brother Bob is greedy. Brother Bob is an an addict. Brother Bob is a liar or a bigot or he's a failure. Isn't that cute? Well, that might be taking it a little bit too far, right? We don't want to call our failures cute. But what if we looked at the failure of Brother Bob or Brother Jeff or Sister Sally and we said, you know what? They're just human. They're just Christians. Maybe they should get another chance. Maybe we should get them to lift their head up and look up and see that they get another chance. Which brings me to a third truth. Every church fails at something. There are no perfect churches. Which follows because churches are made up of People and there's no perfect people and they're made up of Christians and there's no perfect Christians. Which brings me to Acts chapter 6, actually. The early church which started out with such promise and such energy, Holy Spirit power and boldness of love and radical transformation of the people, has a failure. Acts 6, verse 1. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The success of the church actually at loving God and loving each other led to this failure. They had grown to the point where some people were being overlooked. They were feeling slighted. They they were getting left out and they complained about it. They didn't like that. They didn't think it was fair. They didn't think it was right. They thought it was a fail. They failed to love me the way I should have been loved. The success in loving created pressure for them to keep loving really well, to keep serving really well, to keep being the church really well. And some people in the community fell through the cracks. They didn't feel like they were being loved and cared for and served. Now remember, the early church we saw the last couple weeks was radically generous. They were so generous. And their generosity meant that the poorest among them were taken care of really well. And in this case, some of the poorest of the poor would have been the widows. They'd been left out with no livelihood, no family to support them. So they would be given money and food. They would have been supported. At first, all the converts to Christianity would have been Jews, and that was probably still largely the case here, though we have an account of a few kind of converts to Judaism. We've read about that. But most of them were Jews, and they fell into two categories. The first category was the Jews who actually lived in Israel. They lived in this area, and they would have been called the Hebraic Jews, probably the majority And then there was a second group that lived outside of Israel. And they had come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. They were there for whatever reason, but they didn't live there. These were called the Hellenistic Jews, or some call them the, the Grecian Jews. They largely were known because they spoke Greek instead of Aramaic. So there's these two kind of groups. And the disagreement starts in the distribution to these two groups so that the smaller group, the group that's foreigners... It's feeling like they've been overlooked. And the accusation starts as just like we didn't get noticed, we didn't get our fair share, but it likely moved almost immediately into kind of a racial tension. We're being prejudiced against. You're taking care of the Jews from your own neighborhood, but you're not taking care of us. It looks like the first Christian leaders are being unfair and they suspect it's because of prejudice. And that may be, we don't know. You know, they're just people. But this kind of pressure can be uh, demoralizing and distracting. If it's not addressed quickly, it can become kind of like a cancer that erodes from within. And so those who are in leadership recognize they've got to do something quick. And the first thing they do is they name it, they say, We failed. We didn't do what we should have done. Once they name it, then they can do something about it. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn over this responsibility to them. And we will continue to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They responded to this failure wisely. They recognized they didn't want to jump into it and create another problem. They're like, well, it would be a problem if we gave up the ministry of the Word and prayer. That would not be a great solution. So what if we raised up some other individuals who could do this? They didn't dismiss the failure and say, oh, you know, you guys are just complainers. They didn't just go, oh, you know, that's cute, and then move on from it. They recognized this is a problem. We did not get it right the first time, they say. Let's get it right now. Let's try to figure it out. They actually lighten the burden of the failure by saying that the failure is not the end of this reality. The failure is just part of the reality, you know? Everyone fails at something. Every Christian fails at something. Every church fails at something this isn't the end of the story the end of the story is we can respond to the failure and what they respond with is a very imaginative solution they actually break up some of the duties and responsibilities they get the gifted individuals the best of the best who are servants people who like to serve people who are called to serve people who are wired with serving love let's get these people and we'll have them serve What a wise and imaginative solution they have to this. And they select people filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, people who are, I read in those words, spiritually minded and practically minded. They're men of God, but they are also men who love the people, and they ask them to serve. This proposal pleased the whole group. That tells me that they were, uh, you know, they did make a wise decision. And so they chose seven Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas. They presented these names to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. These selected men were given a great responsibility because they had wisdom. They had wisdom to uh, respond to the need that was at hand, they also could identify new needs as they arise. And they could cope with changes and opportunities that came. They could address the next failure that was going to come. And they were prayed for and they were empowered. They were set loose. They're authorized to serve those who need it. And then they're called and set aside to do that. And then they do it. They go serve. They love and they keep on loving. That's the last time this issue comes up in the church in this passage so the word and here's the result of it so the word of God spread so there was no derailment there was no like discontinuation of their ministry it didn't come off the tracks they didn't stop the progress the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and even a number of priests became obedient to the faith They recognize that if they did not get it right the first time, well, then they got another chance to get it right. They're going to go do it again. This seems like such a great model for how we could love Cedar Rapids. Because, you know, we live in a world where things are constantly changing and the needs are always complex and nuanced. We don't know exactly always what to do. But what if we had individuals who were charged with the responsibility of saying, hey, let's go figure out how to love Cedar Rapids and then we'll fix what's broken and if we don't get it right the first time well then we'll try again we'll keep going at it until we can get something done right when we keep failure in proper perspective it, it gives us the power to actually continue on to persevere to not give up to not lose heart in 1972 there was a guy named Ed Catmull anybody heard that name before Ed Catmull he's the president and CEO of Disney Pixar but in 1972 he was just a student at the University of Utah and he made a movie the first computer generated movie and it was titled A Computer Animated Hand that was the name of the movie and it was a movie of A Computer Animated Hand it was one minute long It took him something like 30,000 hours to create a one-minute animated movie of a hand moving. It's out there on YouTube if you want to go look at it. It's not very compelling viewing, but it's out there. You can see it. To make this movie, he tells us, required thousands of failures. And the fruit of this movie was another first, a full-length feature computer-generated movie. You know what that movie was? Toy Story, one of the most successful movies ever. Ed Catmull built Pixar, a successful film studio, because of a computer-generated hand, because of a one-minute movie. That's why he built Pixar. And he built it with this motto, one of many mottos, but one of his mottos was, fail faster. Which, yeah, if you've got to make a thousand mistakes, you want to make them as quick as you can. Because failure's not the end. Failure's only a step in the process, a step that leads you toward becoming better. Uh, and so the phlo- that philosophy says, don't dwell on the failure dwell on the hope, dwell on the thing that you want, dwell on the thing that you want to become. And that sounds a lot like grace. That sounds a lot like a really good Christian motto, doesn't it? And maybe for us as individuals, when we fail, don't dwell on the failure, dwell on the hope. Dwell on the thing that you want to become and try again. Now I think this little mentality is actually more than just like a pep talk or just like trying to give you encouragement to go through your failures and you know that this is that this pain is worth it you'll grow from it or you'll learn from it or something. I think it's a lot more than that. I think it's actually core to our understanding of Christianity and the gospel and grace. Because failure is what we all do. And grace is what we all need. And when we fail, we don't dwell on the failure. We look toward the grace that comes. One of my favorite books on failure is a book called No Regrets. And I can summarize the whole book for you in one statement. The the summary of the book is this. Thou shalt not should on yourself. Isn't that what we usually do when we fail? Oh, I should have done better. Oh, I I should never do that again. Oh, I should. and We should. And a corollary to that is we should, thou shalt not should on anybody else either. And this is the picture of what grace really is about, isn't it? Grace says, I'm not going to look at the failure. I'm going to look at the hope that I have that God is going to make me into something better. That God's good work is not going to be frustrated by my failures. Even a thousand failures. God's grace is big enough to cover me. This is what the book of Acts tells us. It tells us about a movement that actually appears at first glance to be a failure. You look at what happened and the leader who is in charge of this movement never writes a book, never travels very far from home. He invests in only a handful of followers and they don't seem all that sharp. He never holds public office. He never leads a revolt. He never amasses personal wealth. In fact, the leader of the movement is killed as a young man. And then his followers scatter. They run away and hide. It looks like a failure. Jesus did not successfully fulfill the expectations of most of the people who watched him. Instead, he dies on a cross at the age of 33, a death that is both gruesome and shameful. And what comes from this failure? Well, we're told... He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what comes from that failure. Jesus is exalted, We are healed and forgiven for every failure. Every failure is redeemed. Every brokenness is fixed. In us, our failures. In our church, our church's failures. In the world, the world's failures. It's all fixed in Jesus who says, I'm going to love you enough to serve you even if it costs my very life. One guy I like to read a lot because he's got a kind of a nice knack for saying things that encourage me. Brennan Manning is his name. He says this, Suffering, failure, loneliness, sorrow, discouragement, and death will be part of your journey. Do you get that? you hear what he's saying? Suffering, failure, loneliness, sorrow, discouragement, and death will be part of your journey. But the kingdom of God will conquer all these. No evil can resist grace forever. Which sounds a lot like something that Sam said to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. He said, all sad stories come untrue. All failures, could we say it this way? All failures get unmade. So when we fail, do we stare at the failure and shoot on ourselves? Or do we look to the thing that God wants to accomplish and hope that he will do it? My hope for us today is that we're going to completely rethink failure so that will lighten the load of failure and allow us to love wisely, love with imagination, and love with persistently love ourselves and love Cedar Rapids. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day and for this opportunity to gather and worship and for your word and for your spirit who is here to apply your word to our lives. Uh, Guide us in this, and we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.